Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hello and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy Howes. I am your host. It's so nice to have you here. Before we get into Mary Gaucher, a couple of announcements. Uh, If you would like to help produce Basic Folk, you can make a contribution at the website, basicfolk.com slash donate. Uh, You can contribute $5 a month and get access to Backstage, which has all of our very cool bonus content. And it's up now. Uh, You can check it out, basicfolk.com slash donate. We have a brand new website now, uh, and it's looking pretty awesome, if I do say so myself. Uh, You can sign up for the newsletter there. You can follow us on social media, listen to all of the episodes of Basic Folk. And also, if you are a contributing member, you can uh, get access to Backstage and check out all that cool bonus content. Um, Okay, also, uh, Basic Folk on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Every week, American Songwriter sends out a curation of the top five podcasts on the network every Sunday. And if you want that in your inbox from American Songwriters Podcast Network, you can subscribe to the Suncast newsletter by visiting americansongwriter.com slash suncast. Okay, on to Mary Gaucher. I am so into this book. She has a new book, Saved by a Song. It is a must-read for all humans with feelings that need feeling, if you know anyone like that. Gaucher has been writing and recording songs since the early 90s, but she actually started her music career relatively late at age 30. She had grown up as an adopted child in Thibodeau, Louisiana, which was something that she didn't even realize had greatly impacted her until she was in her 40s. She created a concept album, The Foundling, out of that realization. Some people find that album hard to listen to, but it was a deeply healing experience for her and for other grown-up adopted children. She found herself in the Boston area as a chef in her late 20s. She was actually arrested for drunk driving the night of her restaurant opening, the Dixie Kitchen. She spent a hard night in jail, got sober, and started taking an interest in songwriting. Thanks to the encouragement she found at open mics in the area, including at Club Passim in Harvard Square, Mary discovered her true passion was writing songs. She stepped away from her stable career in the restaurant business and started pursuing music full-time. She's toured, released albums, and co-written songs with music professionals for the past 30-plus years now. And for the past several years, she's been working with soldiers and their families on writing songs. Together, The process has been rewarding and challenging for her, culminating in her latest studio album, Rifles and Rosary Beads, from 2018. She's continued her writing with professionals and soldiers, as well as teaching songwriting classes. Most recently, she's been working with healthcare workers to write songs in reaction to their COVID-19 experience. Her work is a gift not only to us, her listeners, but it has actually been life-changing to countless individuals and their families. She is brilliant at bringing people to their most frightening and vulnerable places because she is living proof that life is better on the other side of trauma. Thank you for your wonderful work, Mary Gaucher. We'll take a listen to a song from her latest album, Rifles and Rosary Beads. In fact, the title track. And then we'll get to our conversation with Mary Gaucher on Basic Folk. Rifles and rosary beans you hold on to what you need I could do morphine dreams rifles and rosary beans yellow smoke orange haze 
blowing into my eyes, whistling sunset bombs. I couldn't trust the sky, rivals and rosary beads. You hold on to what you need. If I could do. Morphine dreams, rifles, rosary beads. Mary Gaucher, thanks for talking to me. Yeah. It's, uh, it's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I just finished your book today, and I'm kind of mad about it because I wanted to finish it before... I interviewed you, but I also didn't want to finish it ever because it was so good. Oh, so, thank you. But maybe I can just reread it <laughs> and further the experience. Get the audio version. Let me read it to you. Oh, yeah. Do you read the audio version? Yeah, I do. Oh, I love it. Um, so I heard you talking to Kim Rule on the Why We Write podcast about, like, the different quotes that you have in the book and that you did a lot of research can you explain the research process you did for Saved by a Song and what kind of energy that might have taken versus how you normally write songs? Well, most of the research was reading other instructional books uh, about writing. And uh, I've already read most all of them. But rereading them and really getting in, in there with them. Books like uh, The Artist's Way or the Brenda Eulen book uh, from the 50s called If You Want to Write. Flannery O'Connor, Mystery and Manners. Stephen King has a great book about writing. There's a Hemingway book uh, that is collected letters about writing. Uh, Tom T. Hall wrote about writing. Uh, so I just went through that and uh, and just refreshed my, my memory uh, on how those books uh, came together. And mm. so that's the, the research I did was... Uh, was around writing about writing. The rest I, I had to pull from my own uh, story and experiences. But pulling all these, you have all these quotes, you'll say like, Woody Guthrie said this, or this legendary country singer said this, and I'm reading your book wondering if you're just like pulling these quotes out of your head, or if you... I, coll- I collect great quotes. I collect you great do? quotes, about, especially about music and song and writing. Yep. You write them down? I do, I write them down because I teach. And so I'll say something, and then I'll just use, you know, Woody Guthrie or Lucinda Williams or Johnny Cash or James Baldwin as uh, as reinforcement <laughs> to back up the point I'm making. Do you write them down in uh, – how do you write them down, like in an email draft or a notebook or something? Um, I got a, a document that says great quotes. Great. I love that. And you can just pop it open on your phone. Yeah, I'm not that organized, as you may have just found out. I don't. I I have my systems, but nobody else can use them. So I know where they are. But good luck finding them <laughs> if you're not me. <laughs> I want to know more about your relationship to your name. Um, Mary was given to you by your parents, who adopted you 11 months old. In your book, you say the nuns called you Anastasia in New Orleans at the orphanage. And in your book, you say you'd always been ambivalent to your name. Yeah, I don't really care about my name. I, I should have renamed myself a long time ago. But now that I'm this far along, it's it's my fate to be Mary Gaucher. I don't really have a relationship with that name at all. It's not important to you? No. My adoptive father never met his father. And so the Gaucher name was handed to my adoptive father by a man he never met. So it's twice removed for me. Um, and uh, it's good, you know. Nobody can say it. It's a terrible stage name, but it's it's fine. Uh, I just <laughs> I just don't have I don't I don't know the people where the name came from, and even if I did, they're not really my people because I'm adopted. So it's just yeah, a name. I remember on the I used to play you in college on the college radio show, and I remember the promo sticker would be, "It's Gaucher, y'all." Yeah, trying to get people to say that Cajun. Yeah, in like a very kind way. Right. I always thought, yeah. Um, So you wrote a concept album in your mid-40s called The Foundling, which you talk about in your book. And I've got a couple of questions about 
the foundling. Um, you discovered that you experienced adoption trauma. And can you explain what that term means to you? For me, I think it means there's a primal wound that happens when a baby is separated uh, from their mother. Uh, and um, um, babies know who their mothers are. And you put them in someone else's arms and it's, there's an adjustment period. Uh, and for me, I spent a year in the orphanage, so it was a long wait. Uh, and that year uh, was very, very formative for me. And I think ultimately, at the end of the day, deeply traumatic. That's, that's what mm. I mean. A lot of people find The Foundling, which is your concept album about dismantling that trauma, like kind of hard to listen to, but you say in the book that you had to write it. And I don't know if you're familiar with um, Phil Elvrum, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, from the microphones, who wrote and released this like really vulnerable record about his wife dying from cancer that's also very hard to listen to. And you write about the John Lennon song, Mother. It's just another tough one. And I've heard that Dylan apparently wrote a divorce record that he never released because it's like way too dark. But what can you say about releasing music that's hard to listen to? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, I think that uh, for me, I had to write it. And uh, I had no idea that it would be extremely painful for people to listen to because, you know, I lived it. I wasn't there anymore. Um, mm. And uh, it was kind of surprising to me that the reaction uh, was uh, pretty unanimous in that this this is really painful. So I thought I was telling a story uh, that would explain some of what I mean by adoption trauma. Uh, about being an orphan and about being uh, also the child of four parents. How does that work? How can you have four parents and be an orphan? So I was I was diving into a conversation that I thought it was time to have. So, you know, you put it out there, it lands or it doesn't. People listen or they don't. Um, I, I go where the questions are. I try to answer them, uh, and then I move on. I don't I don't stay there. Um, so some people really found the record uh, useful, uh, people who have been fostered, people with adopted uh, uh, kids or brothers or sisters in their family, people who are adoptive parents, certainly birth mothers. So there's a community that it's their story, too, so they can listen to it without the shock of, of um, being surprised <laughs> about the story. Um, they know the story, and for them, this is empathy, that they see their own life in that story, and they feel like they're being seen. Uh, so yeah. that's kind of what the audience worked out to be, those who thought it was really, really painful to listen to, and those who, who knew it as their own story and were grateful that someone was articulating it. You never know, going into a project, how it's going to be received, and um you know, I, I thought it was worth putting out into the world, and I still do, although I don't play those songs live anymore. I just have moved on from it. But people mm -hmm. who are just beginning to articulate some of their emotional reality around this issue uh, find the songs really useful. Uh, you've been sober since 1990, and it saved your life. You talk about it in the book, and it helped you discover your path to songwriting, and it has given you many gifts um, where are the struggles for you now, 30-plus years later, after living a sober life, being around a culture that's obsessed with alcohol? Yeah, um, I don't struggle with alcohol. I don't struggle with the culture that is obsessed with alcohol. I just, I just do my work. I find that uh, recovery is always uncovering more work to do. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm... I'm just focused on what it is that's in front of me. I uh, I really don't uh, pay a lot of attention to to the um, messaging, especially around drinking, that comes from our culture and particularly Nashville. Um, I think it's escalating in its in its um, in its large sound of alcohol consumption but I you know it's that's how it is um hmm. they're not I'm not their market uh and yeah. uh, uh just bounces off of me um I'm really interested in uh in what the sober life 
holds after 31 years sober, uh, which I celebrated this summer. What, what's left to uncover? And what's shocking to me is the answer is a lot. Yeah. Uh, I love being wow. sober, and I love being around people that aren't high. I love being in conversations that uh, are about ideas uh, that are not um, drug or alcohol influenced. And I really enjoy uh, being uh, in a community of people uh, that are not uh, focused on escaping reality, but pursuing reality. Hmm. I've been trying it out since uh, I did a dry July and have sort of just kept going. So I'm like trying it out and it is wild. Like after maybe like two months, all of the feelings are still there. So it's it's a wild ride. It's a wild ride. After three decades, <laughs> it's still a wild ride. Uh, in that, there's always more mystery. Uh, life is life is fantastic, and becoming more and more alive uh, as I age is incredible. Um, and checking in, choosing to check in over and over again, over checking out. Um, my goodness. Uh, it, it, it makes me smile because there is a lot of beauty and love and connection to be had in recovery. Mm-hmm. It was very hard for me to truly connect when I was drinking. It felt like I was connecting, uh, but what was happening was um, I was disconnecting. And that's not mm-hmm. true for everybody. Somebody, you know, some people can have a couple drinks and have a great time and have a good conversation, stop when it starts to get... Um, I don't know what the word would be that starts to, 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 to be impactful. Messy. Yeah, messy, when it starts to become disconnected uh, through mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the, the process of the chemicals in, on our brain. Um, most people are not alcoholics and addicts. I, I am, you know. Most, mm-hmm. most people are social drinkers, and that, there's a real place for that, and I, I don't have a problem with that. I just know I can't do it, that's all. Yeah. Okay, here's a very vulnerable question that we can feel free to skip, but I'd like to ask it. Um, in your book, you talk about your first attempt at the open mic at Club Passim, and I remember this because you did a stream for Club Passim very early in the pandemic. It was before the book came out, and you read this part of the book, uh, and I, I was made me so excited to read it. But you talked about your appearance and point out that you looked gay or older than everyone else, <laughs> And we're probably obese, like at least overweight. Definitely. All three. So, <laughs> Still true. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, but what has been your experience living inside your own physical body? And what has that relationship been like for you? Well, see, that's part of being sober is to really become embodied um, and to to have a relationship uh, with uh, with how I look, reality-based, and what people see when they see me. Uh, I have become really playful about it. I really like um, appearing in places where people like me don't normally appear, like the Grand Old Opry, or uh, you name uh, the places where, you know, people who look like me aren't frequently found. I like being playful about it because people will laugh if if uh, if I approach it with with humor and and uh, awareness. Um, I'm totally cool in my body. I'm totally fine with how I look. I'm totally at peace with with my uh, appearance. Uh, I'm, I always want to lose 20 more pounds, but it's probably not going to happen. I like food too much, and <laughs> I'm fine. I'm not trying to use my body. Uh, as uh, a, uh, as anything, I just want to I just want to enjoy my days and and so you know I'm fine I'm I'm hmm. I'm, I'm at peace around all that stuff. But in the beginning, I think uh, what I, the point I was really making with that passage was the discomfort needs to find a reason, and so you start because the in the beginning getting on stage is terrifying. And so the fear is primal. And so the mind works in the realm of reason, and you start to find 
that you need reasons why you feel uncomfortable. And so that's the litany that my brain gave me. So I'm too old, I'm too fat, I'm too gay, I'm too Southern, I'm too, all those things. But really the deep, deep fear is that I'm not good enough. Mm. And those reasons are all just bullshit. The, the real fear is worthiness. It's around worthiness. And I've made peace mm. with that. That's part of the great joy of getting older. In learning to write songs, you imparted this wisdom on Kim's podcast. Uh, and this is uh, not verbatim, but there's rules around telling your experience, but it's important to break them. The rules are part of the patriarchy, and that hurts everyone. If I didn't break the rules, the rules would break me. And then you got super pumped when you said that. Which, If, if people haven't heard Kim Rule's conversation with Mary, um, you got to go check it out. The podcast called is called Why We Write. Um, okay, so in reading your book, it seems like you have broken the rules a lot and pushed outside of your comfort zone over and over and have grown exponentially because of it. But before you went on this journey of writing songs, were you a rule follower growing up? What were your feelings about the rules and how hard was it for you to eventually break them? Never followed rules. Never followed directions. Not It's not in my nature. Quit high school quit college, quit. As soon as I got the information I needed, why do I need their piece of paper? I never, ever planned on working for anyone else. I'm, I'm pretty self-driven and um, self-employed always. So I, I think by nature, uh, that's who I am. Um, uh, there's rules that are obvious and then there's rules that you have uh, no understanding of and you keep bumping up against something and another layer gets identified and I think that's what I was getting at with Kim is that uh, uh, the rules of the patriarchy is, are basically that that you know the, there's there's a place for women and 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 if, if you don't accept that uh, then they're gonna they're gonna hold you down and hold you back and block the door, and uh, you know it's so much um, unspoken and 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 you feel it when you push up against it, but it's not it's not real uh, clear that that's what's going on, and and once I'm identifying that, I, I find my way uh, to the other side of it, and uh, it. Every woman has their path, um, and every every girl has their path. I, I wish that I wish that we could uh, join hands um, and uh, and really form an old girls network. Um, and I I look at younger generations that are doing it. You know, certainly Brandy Carlisle's leading the way. Um, she's definitely a rule breaker, uh, and has reached for the hand of of so many, including me. Um, and she's 20 years younger than me, but she's she's pushing her way right to the top, and uh, nobody's going to stop her. And I love that, and I love how how she's bringing so many women with her. And that's mm. that's what I want to do too is is grab the hand of women and allies, male allies, to uh, to to push through the the structures that want to hold us down and tell us what we can and cannot do and what we can and cannot say, who we can and cannot love. The rules, the rules suck. <laughs> There's the quote, the rules suck. The rules suck, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> when you moved to Nashville, you were in, invited to a song circle, and Nancy Griffith gave you her guitar after you played, um, which is a tradition in Nashville. Can you talk about that tradition, what it meant to you, and have you paid it forward? Have you given a newcomer a guitar? Um, yeah, well, well, the when I got to Nashville, there was still old Nashville. That's just over. It it ended with the television show. Quite honestly, um, the television show called Nashville uh, was the end of Nashville. That the Nashville that that I cherish, the Nashville of old. Mm -hmm. um, and in the old days, that's 
something that folks did. Um, I know Johnny Cash gave away several of his guitars, and Harlan Howard, the great songwriter, gave away several of his guitars. And, and when I first came to town, it was 2001, and I got invited to a song circle and, and Nashville uh, uh, welcomed me in a way that I would have never imagined Nancy Griffith passed on her guitar to me. Uh, and I still have it, and I played it the day she died. And uh, I, I love Nancy Griffith and was a huge, huge fan long before I ever wrote my first song, long before I ever got sober. I, I loved her music, I always will, still do. Um, so, no, I haven't passed on a guitar, but the, 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 the hope is that this book is the passing on of a guitar. Mm. Um, I, uh, I want to pass on what I've learned, and that's why I wrote the book, is mm. this is my accumulated wisdom for what it's worth. Mm. You're an artist of a certain notoriety, but you're still very accessible to people who want to write songs with you, to talk to you after a gig. And since I worked at Club Passim right around the start of the pandemic, I've seen you practice generosity, donating your take of streaming tickets back to Passim. Where do you see that attribute in yourself and what keeps you so loyal and so accessible to regular people? Oh, I never set out to be a rock star. I'm a troubadour. I work, I, you know, I work at the ground level. It's the relationships uh, that matter to me. Um, the people who supported me, I want to support them, and that doesn't ever go away. Uh, I don't have the ambition to climb to the top of any heap. Um, I just want to. I just want to stay uh, focused on doing what I do, uh, and the only way to do that is to. Uh, have long-term relationships with people over time. And the way to do that, as my recovery sponsor says, if you want to have friends, you got to do friendly shit. And so Passim was my home club, and it would, it would make perfect sense and did make perfect sense to me to, to help the doors stay open in the moment of need. Um, and was happy to be able to do that. I think that there was a pretty good amount of money made that night. And, uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's relationships that matter, really. And, and so I, I, my whole life, uh, have, have been a lever. And, and so my recovery has been about learning how to stay mm -hmm. and, uh, and changing that pattern of being, uh, left and leaving. So uh, I, I am accessible. Uh, I got boundaries. I mean, I got I to gotta protect myself from uh, too much uh, uh, accessibility, but I'm accessible, and uh, uh, I hope to remain that way. I don't see any reason why I wouldn't. I, I like the relationships, especially the long-term ones that, that we, we, we have a, a back and forth. It's reciprocity. It works. It's Amazing. Um, something that you've talked about, you've talked about fame as being a negative. And also you've said we need to get music away from the music industry. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So why is that and how do we do it? Well, I think folk singers have been doing it all along. There was the great folk scare of the 60s, early 70s, but mostly folk singers are underneath the radar of the industry. The great folk scare. <laughs> yeah, when folk singers were getting record deals for a little while, um, big record deals. Um, mm. I think the way to do it is just write the truth, uh, and uh, it will find its audience. Uh, and try, for me, just try to connect with people in front of me and use that as my primary motivation and focus of what I do. Um uh, the industry itself um, is interested in mega sales, uh, and so uh, that's never been my wheelhouse. Uh, I had a brief uh, two-record run on, on a major label, but the CEO was interested in me. The CEO was interested in what I was doing. They had given him mm -hmm. a, an imprint to run uh, because he did so well with Shania Twain, so he opened up an imprint, and he immediately signed... Um, 
the O Brother Where Art Thou record, which is, you know, in a collection of really great songs with great singers. Uh, and then started working with uh, singer-songwriters that he really wanted to work with as opposed to had to work with uh, on the... Uh, on the universal side of the Lost mm -hmm. Highway label is what I'm referencing. So I, I was lucky to have that, and nobody ever asked me to change how I looked or what I wrote about. It was a brief moment in time, and that doesn't exist anymore. It's, it's just not there. So there's a whole network of ways to reach out to people and connect uh, musically uh, without uh, the aid or assistance of the industry. Daryl Scott showed you how to teach songwriting? He did. I worked with him as uh, a co-teacher for a couple of years, uh, and I let him take the lead because he was the leader, and uh, I watched how he, he did it, and uh, I got him asked to teach at a couple of folk festivals, Rocky Mountain Folk Festival uh, in Colorado, and, and I became a teacher, and now I teach a lot, and I really love uh, working with songwriters, helping them to be brave. In teaching songwriting, you encourage and push people to get to their most vulnerable and sacred parts, and it seems like you continuously go to those places with people. How did you learn to get people to go to those places, and what was it like to figure out like how to sit with people who are maybe strangers to you? I just think that's where the good stuff is in music, song, art, all art. Art is where we tell our secrets. Uh, but the trick is to get past the I and the me and find the we. There's a universal inside of all of us and I think that's where great art is born. Where we connect uh, with others, not just the specifics of my own um, struggle or my own joy, but the universal experience of, of what it's like uh, to be a human being right here, right now, today. Uh, and uh, uh, so I just walk people to the place where they don't know what they're talking about anymore, and that's where you get started. That's where it starts. We don't write what we know. <laughs> Everybody already knows what we know. And what we know uh, is the tip of the iceberg. It's getting into the unknown where things get interesting. Wow. How do you work with someone who's not ready to face their trauma and is an unwilling participant. They don't come to me. They go to Kid Rock's Bar and Grill. I mean, I don't know where they go. They go to commercial songwriting uh, organizations that are focused on hit writing. And that's cool. And there's room for everybody. My take is just a little niche that I found mm. saved my life. And I am very much all about the giant umbrella of inclusion. I'm not in any way saying this is how it should be for anybody else, but for those who want to come along, this is what I'm up to. How did you learn the types of environments to create when writing with different types of people? Well, it's always about safety, and it's always about people being seen and heard and, and, and respect. It's always about uh, uh, listening. If you're writing with someone, um, not taking over, having it be... Uh, a place where uh, a container is formed and, and, and both people can, can be vulnerable. That, that's, mm. that's, the, that's the real trick, is to uh, create safety. So I'm a, a serial fixer. Like, I love fixing people's problems. It's just, like, it's an issue. But so when you're writing a song with somebody, you are not there to diagnose. You're there to witness, not to be their therapist. So, like... What is the line for you to, to want to be the therapist, and do you have a history of, like, wanting to fix? Mm, I have, um, but I went to treatment for that, and it actually really helped me. Um, I don't believe I ever fixed anybody in decades of working hard on other people's lives. I don't think we're here to fix each other. I think we're here to see each other. And so I know my job as a songwriter when I'm working especially with wounded veterans or doctors and nurses that are just at their wits end with the, epi the pandemic, um, my job is to bear witness and to help them tell their story. So my job is to get out of the way 
and to get their voice into their song and to uh, make sure that I get their voice right. That in and of itself is is transformative and healing. I, I'm not healing them, the song is. I'm not fixing them. The song is mm-hmm. helping them to to make sense of of what might be a very, very confusing and painful time. Hmm. I did an interview with Amy Helm, and we were talking about the song you wrote together, Cotton in the Cane. The song is basically about her living with the addicts in her family, so she's never talked about that inside, outside of close friends, which must, it sounds like that must have been an incredible writing session for you both. Yeah, I loved bringing her there. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, I don't think that, um, that it was easy for her. I think that there is a whole story around not talking about this stuff. But going there, I think, is how we get out of the cycle of silence that doesn't serve any of us. Mm. You know, Levon got sober before he died, and, and, and so that means there was a long history of Levon not sober, and we all know that. Mm-hmm. To have her talk about what it was like, I think, is really of interest to those who, who love her and, and love Levon and the band and, and those who, who are interested in the whole story. I thought we wrote a beautiful song, and I applaud her courage for singing it. Working with non-writers and co-writing with professionals, how do the experiences compare? Um, it depends on the individual. Sometimes with professionals, it's awesome because it goes fast. They already have half a song written. <laughs> yeah, they can ding, 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 and it's just like we're cooking, we're cooking on a high flame. And sometimes mm-hmm. with professionals, they'll go, nope. Nope, no, dismiss things because of reasons that have to do with the marketplace. Uh, and that's uh, a struggle for me because I'm not interested in the marketplace. I'm interested in the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never know which way it's going to go. And people who aren't songwriters are wonderful to write with because they're astonished at the process. And so it's fun to hear mm-hmm. their words for the first time sung back is is very uh, moving and uh uh, I love being that person to bring them to that place. How do you guide someone in writing a joyful song? Well, the the guide is the song itself. I'm just trying to get to where they are on, in an honest uh, way. If they're joyful, it's going to be a joyful song. If they're experiencing mm. a lot of pain, it's going to be a song that, that articulates what... I'm looking for the truth. Whatever they're going through, that's what the song's going to reflect. Mm. And so I'm th- I let the song be the guide, and we're going to find the truth um, and, and then sing it. Th- that's my mandate. So I don't mm. try to duct tape on anything. I let their experience <laughs> and their reality be the, be the mandate. Uh, in the book, you're talking about songwriting with soldiers program, and you mentioned that when you're listening to a soldier talk about their story, you find a melody that matches what they're talking about. Um, how do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I just grab the instrument and start playing and try to match the simple little notes that I play with the sense of what is coming off of them emotionally. And when Mm -hmm. I get there, we both feel it. It's an intuitive thing. I think it has to do with deep listening, and I think it has to do with um, uh, knowing uh, enough about songwriting so uh, so that I'm not afraid to try a myriad of things to see what resonates. You know, with doctors and nurses, one time I was writing on Zoom during the height of the pandemic, and I was playing this sad thing, and I, their eyes weren't lit up, and it was it was just not happening. And then I went mm-hmm. to this thing that sounded almost like punk rock, and they lit up. It's like jam, 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 and they lit up. So I knew that what they were feeling was pissed off because mm. I saw it in their face. You read the body language. And who can blame them? Yeah, totally. Well, that's cool. It's really cool to hear about that. 
So reading the chapter on the soldier Joe in your book was very powerful. He wrote Rifles and Rosary Beads with you, and I was, like, crying my eyes (laughs) out. Like, I've never, like, in reading a book, like, they're just, the tears are falling. It was so amazing. Um, What was it like for you to retell his story in your book? I've told it a lot on stage, with his permission, Mm -hmm. of course. That was a physical transformation in a really short period of time. Joe looked probably 50, 55 years old, and he was 30 when I sat with him to write. But as he connected with me and we began to resonate and the song started to come alive, and he he came out of what he was trapped under, um, his face changed. The deep lines literally softened. People carry their pain in their face. And to watch those lines soften in real time because of a song uh, was incredible for me. And I know there's a neuroscience and a biology behind this. And I hope that those who are interested in such things will do the research to prove the science of what I already know to be true. There's something transformative (laughs) happening. said trauma is the epidemic and you found writing songs to have helped you and many others so for those who maybe are listening and want to try writing to help with their trauma where should someone start well you know before I became a songwriter I kept journals uh, and I still have stacks of them I, I never threw any of them away uh, writing your way through what's going on is really helpful if you read The Artist's Way, that's what Julia Cameron instructs, the, uh, the daily pages. She calls them morning pages. Get up in the morning and write. Write for 15 minutes and don't take your pen off the paper. Don't edit. Just, just get it out. That kind of writing can be done by anybody, and it's very, very helpful. Um, and if you want to write songs uh, and you're not sure how to do it, go to open mics and watch the beginners. See how, see how it starts. Ask a songwriter to write with you. And uh, if you don't know how to play an instrument, uh, let them play the instrument. You just sit and, and be the story. Um, there's so many ways in. Uh, there's much more than just songwriting, too. I mean, I focus on songwriting. But I think if you try to, try to get to truth using art, be it you know literature or poetry or, or uh, memoir through journaling or or music and song, uh, you know, there's there's so many different ways in. Um, I think we're all creative, we're born creative, creative and adaptive. And I always encourage people to try to, to create. Whatever uh, whatever moves you, try, try it, try, try it. You know, I, I think in my old age, I'm gonna learn how to paint. All right. <laughs> Pick up some paints. Uh, how far have you gone in that process of getting the painting ready? Well, I've taken a couple little workshops, and I love it. And I can't believe it when I look at a canvas and I've actually made something that I like. Um, a lot of songwriters paint. Joan Baez is painting now. She's off the road. She's a full-time painter. Um, so many. Sam Baker, incredible painter. Just an astonishingly good painter. Uh, Kieran Kane, I love his paintings. Fred Eaglesmith. He's a really good painter. So he always says it's so bad, it's good. It's so wrong, <laughs> it's right. You know, make sense out of that. I don't know what it means. I think it just means uh, that that he doesn't listen to the rules. I uh, watched that video of you talking about frontline songs, working with frontline healthcare workers, writing songs about their experience during the pandemic. And you did these sessions, well, at least on the video, you did the sessions over Zoom which is a new thing for us all, but in, in use, being able to use Zoom to connect with people and write songs to change their lives, like how has your relationship to Zoom and video calls to keep doing this important year, important work changed in the last year and a half? Well, we're all just learning how it does and doesn't work. Um, the upside is obvious. We can get with people who aren't in the same town, state, our country than us, um, and and work together. Um, the downside is 
you can't really fully read uh, people's body language because you're only seeing their face. Um, mm. There's uh, a connection that happens in person uh, that feels much more um, authentic. On the other hand, these connections made on this technology are also real. So I think we have ways to go to understand uh, uh, how to best use it. Uh, but the songs I've co-written on Zoom, especially with frontline workers, have been really good. And the experience of those I've written with, um, in their words, um, has been significant to them. So something's working. Hmm. All right, here's the other question about your 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 physical appearance. So you have a very definitive look. Um, <laughs> short hair, very sharp androgynous clothing, the red tinted glasses, which if you're listening to the podcast, you can't see, but Mary has them on. Uh, you know, you've gone through, you know, if you look at the Google image searches, there's some older pictures with some makeup, and now there's basically no makeup. What was the process of creating a physical image for yourself? Well, it's coming down to comfort. And um, I put, oh, I don't put, I don't know how to put makeup on, but uh, I allow a makeup artist to apply a light amount of makeup on my face for photo shoots because that's really helpful in in front of a camera. But I don't want to ever look like I have makeup on, so it's a fine line. Now that I'm, I'll be 60 years old uh, in March, um, I'm all about comfort. Uh, and what, what is it that makes me comfortable uh, uh, is, is sort of a moving target. But I know what makes me uncomfortable. So removing that is where I find comfort. Um, it's never been about how I look. Uh, it's always been about the songs and the music and uh, I express myself uh, in my clothes and in my hair and my, you know, I'm wearing a t-shirt and a little bolo thing and and my tinted glasses are kind of a thing now that I don't even, I I don't think my eyes could deal with the sunlight at this stage, but I honestly just (laughs) want to be comfortable. Um, And uh, I know what what, what feels good. Uh, And once I'm relaxed and comfortable, in a weird way, I become attractive because a comfortable person is attractive, and that's how I do it. Um, mm. I've allowed, um, in the past, uh, certain levels of discomfort to try to to accommodate uh, whoever it was that was behind the camera and what they were looking for. And nowadays, I'm just I just want to be comfortable, and that mm. makes good pictures every time. Can you tell me about the flag behind you? Yeah, that's to uh, to symbolize inclusion. Uh, it's a rainbow flag. Uh, everybody's welcome here. And it's also, uh, when we do the live streams, if people in, wind up, you know, in the audience and they are uh, opposed to the rainbow flag, they're invited to uh, go to Kid Rock's Bar and Grill. <laughs> they don't have to be here. <laughs> it's an unapologetic uh, attempt at uh, letting... Um, LGBTQ people know that they're safe with me, uh, that uh, tra- trans, trans men and women, non-binary, um, all of the folk who, who respond to uh, the rainbow flag are welcome, welcome, and the people who respond negatively to it can, can certainly self-eliminate. Um, I'm not kicking mm-hmm. anybody out, but if it pisses you off, it's really not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the musician Jamie Harris, uh, who thank you, Jamie, for helping us out earlier. I couldn't uh, Jamie's, do this without her. <laughs> I know. Uh, she's your partner, and you talk in the book a lot about struggling with relationships for a really long time, and now it seems like you have a really good one going. And it's with someone who not only understands technology, mm-hmm. but also really understands your work and who often will accompany you on stage um, what does that mean to you to have Jamie in your life as a fellow musician who can share in that creation with you? We're all in. Um, it can be real scary because I count on her in every way. Uh, but she's a, a sober person. She's seven years clean and sober. Um, she's very uh, kind. She's also very present. Um, 
and uh, she's trustworthy. She she's she does what she says she's gonna do. I feel really really grateful and blessed to have found her. Um, it's my first relationship uh, that uh, I, I feel like this one is just different. It's just different. I'm different, uh, and she's unlike anybody I've ever been with. She's uh, she's a deep soulful person with a, a huge amount of kindness. Hmm. It's also very convenient that she also wears red glasses. <laughs> and sings like a, a nobody's <laughs> business. That woman That's can right. sing. Yeah, she's an incredible singer and a, uh, just an amazing harmony singer. And uh, mm. lucky to have her with me right now uh, on yeah. the road. She'll be going off and doing her own thing uh, as well as working with me. And that's part of our journey is uh, she has she has her own own thing to do. She's got an incredible new record in 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 process, uh, and I think we've lined up some people that are going to help release it, and that's going to be in 2022. So you'll be hearing a lot more from her, uh, and uh, I'm excited f- for that for her and and for us. You know, we want each other to succeed, which is a good feeling. Great. Well, before we let you go, Mary, will you do the lightning round? Sure. All right. Here we go. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Jim Croce. I, I think the first full song was Time in a Bottle. Wow, good one. Um, what is your karaoke song? Don't do karaoke. Love it. Uh, dogs or cats or something else? Dogs. What is your coffee order? Black, strong, dark. <laughs> <laughs> first celebrity crush? Hmm... Karen Carpenter. Oh, really good. <laughs> Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Jamie Harris. Haha, <laughs> love it. Uh, first album you bought with your own money? Um, Don McLean, American Pie. What was your first concert? Wow, Charlie Rich. Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Beatles. Flying or Invisibility? Flying. Mm-hmm, correct. And then one more. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Can't narrow that down. I just came nope. home from Sisters, Oregon. That's pretty darn nice. Uh, I've seen pictures of people posting at the festival and going on nature walks, and it looks unreal. It is gorgeous, but so many places on Earth are gorgeous. Key West doesn't <laughs> doesn't. Key West is mighty nice. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, Gosh, you know, I love walking the French Quarter. I love the ghosts in New Orleans. I love so many places. Very hard to narrow that down. Mm. Well, thanks for trying. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. Thank you so much, Mary. The book is is so great. Thank you for writing it. And I hope you have another one in you. I'm going to, I'm already starting it. Yeah. So great. Great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Basic Folk This Week was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton of Townspeople composes our music. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can support us at our website, basicfolk.com slash donate. That's also where you can listen to all of the episodes of the podcast, or you can get them wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks a lot for listening all the way to the end. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.